Beloved, take your copy of God's Word. The life-saving words for us, take your copy and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. If you're visiting with us, you'll see one right in front of you and the racks in front of you. Chapter 25. We carry on in the Lord's strength as we continue to say in this season, remembering the brothers gone and going before us and recognizing those still to come as we now open God's word, Exodus chapter 25. Again, we return to our study in this book, this wonderful book this morning. This is a book that presents our God, Yahweh, and as we've said throughout the study, God alone presents Yahweh, God, and God alone. From the opening pages, this book has demonstrated the one true God. What you don't get is a selection of gods and choose your favorite. This isn't a God that you want him to be. This is the one true God as he presents himself to his people and really the nations. By way of his sovereignty, this one true God is presented by way of his sovereignty, which is by his sovereignty, his complete power and control over all. Have we not seen that in our study? God is sovereign. That means he's in complete control over peoples, over rulers, in fact, over nature itself. That's what we've seen demonstrated in this book. And I know, Christian, that's your comfort today. The same God who is sovereign over Pharaoh is sovereign over your body and soul. And I pray that's your comfort And that same God who is sovereign and works through his mighty providence, the great miracle of providence, we have seen from the opening pages to preserve the remnant of his people. Remember Jacob and his family at the end of Genesis? We see them at the beginning of Exodus, the 70 that are there, preserved through that wonderful account of Joseph by God's providence, moved from Canaan to Egypt to settle them there, on Egyptian soil, to multiply them there from 70 to much more. And as they became enslaved to the Egyptians, it was God alone that heard the cries of his people and moved and met his people. First, by way of a mediator, you remember him, Moses, and the encounter on Sinai at the burning bush. Through Moses, the all-powerful God delivered his people Remember, with plagues and through the sea. And then the merciful God led his people. Remember, leading a people that were grumbling, fresh off deliverance. He he led a people wrought with unbelief, fresh off redemption. That's the mercy of God. And then the graciousness of God to bring them to Sinai to be his people. To to formalize, if you will, the covenant with his people. At Sinai, the holy God revealed his standard then of living as his people, which, as we studied last year, was this, was nothing short of God's character legalized. That's what we got at Sinai. Yes, the very nature of God himself as the righteous standard of life. To be God's people means... To live by the standard of God's person. To be God's people means to live by the standard of God's person. That's no earthly standard. 
It's a divine standard. Remember, church, this is the point of deliverance. The point of deliverance is devotion to Yahweh and to the one true God. The point of deliverance is not delivery to self. We've said that so many times in this study. God delivers for the purpose of devotion to him. That point cannot be stressed enough in this book. Over the final 16 chapters of this book that await us, we will see why. If the first two-thirds of Exodus, the first 24 chapters, were about deliverance, and they were, that was the theme, then the final one-third is about presence. Yes, the presence of God with his people. This is the dwelling of God with man, which biblically is, you know this word, to tabernacle. And that is precisely what tabernacle means, that word. It means to settle down with, to abide with, to dwell. That's what tabernacle means. We will see that word in verse 9 of our passage today and others in this account in the weeks to come that describe God's manifest presence with his people. We'll treat those, by the way, the various words for tabernacle and presence as we arrive at them. We'll look at two of them today. Yet they're all pointing to this, God's earthly dwelling. Again, remember, God's earthly dwelling is manifest presence with his people, God with them. Over the final chapters of Exodus, we will see, and this is where we're going in the weeks to come, the construction of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. A structure built for God's dwelling among and meeting with his people. His people. Now, I think... One thing must be noted before we move on, by way of introductory matters to these final 16 chapters. This is deliverance first, then presence. Can we grab that? Deliverance first, then presence. And you say, why is that important? That order is very important. Because, friends, there's no other way. We have a lot of people today claiming the presence of God, right? with no deliverance. You cannot have an experience in whatever that may be, the presence of God without him truly delivering you. And that's the order, deliverance and presence. Friends, there's no other way. You, you cannot have. We, again, we need to be clear about this as we descend into this tabernacle account. What you're about to see, you cannot have the presence of God manifest with a people In fact, I would also say you cannot have the peace that comes with God's presence. You cannot have that peace of the presence of God without true deliverance. You can't. It's actually impossible. And you would say then, I need to be delivered. You need to be delivered. And you would say to me, delivered from what? Because I have experiences and I want that maybe delivered from what? Well, we have a number of testimonies around these parts these days, and I know many more in your journey on earth. We have, as I've mentioned, Rick before, a man who knows that he's going to die. But he has great peace about that. That's right. That's right. He is not afraid to die. 
Doesn't that conflict every single narrative you're hearing today? So many people living to not die. Not our brother. He lived right to the very end. How is that? How does he have such a real presence of God in his life? Because Rick was delivered. You heard three testimonies this morning. Walking through their own valley, yet, yet this. How? Why with this peace? Because they were delivered. They were delivered. And you would say, well, delivered from what? Delivered, as you heard this morning, from unbelief. Delivered from selfishness. Delivered from anger. Delivered from sin. Those things not only keep you in bondage here in this life, and mark that, those things keep you in bondage, but they earn you separation, not proximity to, separation from God's presence. Listen, in this life and the one to come beyond the grave. And that is why, friend, that is why, friend, if you do not know the deliverance and presence of God, that is why you need deliverance. You need it before you too take your final breath. That is why you need a deliverer. And the deliverer presented to you that you've heard testified to this morning, that is proclaimed in every valley of sorrow that we've been going through at Westmount, is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the presented Savior of all mankind. Not all recognize him as such, but there is none other. Jesus Christ. And to be in the presence of God, there is no other way than to repent of your anger and your selfishness and your sinfulness and yourself and embrace the deliverer. Faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ because no one is ever able to make themselves right before God. That's the great, great deception. Not only today, by the way, of all ages. I just live better than he, than her, and I will be okay. No one is ever able to make themselves right before God. Our best efforts, like we see with Israel, at cleaning ourselves up are actually tatters. And bankruptcy, Isaiah 64, 6. And even our best attempts at keeping God's standard, God's person standard, fall short, Romans 3. And that is why we, like Israel, need the initiating, the initiating, enabling, powerful work of God. We, too, like Israel, need that. Israel needed, as we've seen and will see, the mercy and grace of Yahweh, his steadfast love and promise to never forsake them and always provide and provide he did. Yahweh provided Israel everything they needed to follow him. Listen, from food to faith, he provided it. Yahweh gave it. Yet with such heavenly provision, Israel failed. And here again, as we pick up in chapter 25, we see Yahweh's grace again to prepare to instruct and ready Israel for his presence, for God Almighty to dwell with them. In the following chapters, we'll see God's instructions for Israel to prepare to tabernacle. 
And again, note that this is God prescribing and providing what is needed, listen, to meet him, to serve him, to worship him. And note this, all given first and graciously by God, the great first cause, the one initiating from him first. And listen, let's be clear as we start. The issue is not earning something, that Israel mustered up something, or that they could do anything. In fact, they couldn't. Later on, it said they are the least of all nations, least of all people. So it's not about earning or anything. It is Israel giving back and responding in kind to what Yahweh has given you. He has given you food. He has given you faith. What will you do with that in response to your deliverance? And that's important because there are no exceptions then for Israel here. Their shelf is full, right? They have all they need from food to faith. Their shelf is full to give back to Yahweh. And there's no concessions offered. Beloved, let us settle our minds when we think about responding rightly to the presence of God. Let us settle in our minds for this portion of the book what we won't see. We won't see... And you hear this, you know, Israel, I understand your disposition, right? This elderly father disposition, I understand, I understand. I know your experiences, Israel, and it's okay. No, you know, just give this meeting thing a try. Are, are you, can you try that for me? You won't see that from Yahweh. Just gather as you would like. Just do it your way. You won't see that from Yahweh. No, there's no such flippant relationship here. Irreverent commerce. No, not like the many that you hear today in church circles. No, instead we will see Yahweh make clear that preparations for his presence are needed. With what he's given, he will call Israel to prepare for him in three very specific ways. Heartily, excellently, and accordingly. So we continue to see, and the prescription for Israel is a principle for us, church. Many principles we've learned in Exodus. Principles of our own approach and attitude toward God dwelling with us. So let's take a look down at our passage today, starting chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twinned linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that we would receive that text today. Give us eyes to understand it, heart to receive and apply it, Lord, and to give you glory through the application of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Preparing for God's presence to dwell among them involves first this. This is our first point. Contributing heartily. Contributing heartily. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord said to Moses, 
Moses, remember, went up to Sinai to receive word and instruction from God. That's where we left off, remember, at the end of chapter 24. Moses on Sinai, he, of course, in God's presence. Thus far, the only one with access to the divine presence, Moses, and hence, Moses, the mediator between God and his people. So Moses is standing there on Sinai on behalf of God's people. That was God's presence on the mountain. Now it would manifest below, and the people were to prepare a dwelling place, a tabernacle for him, a dwelling place for God. The first instruction to Israel by way of preparation is insightful for us. Look at verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you, sh- you shall receive the contribution from me. Construction of the tabernacle, like all constructions, we would say, requires resources. It requires materials. And what we need to notice first is that God doesn't drop parachute loads from the sky. Do you see that? He's not dropping supplies from the sky. Look at this economy of God. Instead, God causes, note that, causes provision by way of his people. Do you see that? It's through the people that he provides. It is indirectly through the people and their contribution. And we'll see what kind of contribution it is in a moment. And beloved, we have to comment that this is the way God always does it. I think so many, and yes, even in the church can lose sight of this. It's a, this is the right means, the godly means of provision and providing for not just God's work, for all, for God's people, through the body, through the saints. And it is a godly means as opposed to ungodly means. We love the fast cash, don't we? We love the casino hits and lottery wins and think that God provides through that. He's not in that. He's not in the economy of Canaan. Let's be very clear about that. No, those instant cash claims do not deal in kingdom economy. The least of which I would say they don't glorify him at all. So please don't think that God's going to provide through a lottery win. Believe me, the OLC and the like They're not giving you money out of their great benevolence. That is for sure. Let's be clear. Not at all. No, God's economy. Let's get to God. Let's do it God's way. God's economy is provision through his people. Let me ask you, does that not glorify God? Through his people. And this specific organ of his people, the heart. Look again at verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. And look at this. From every man who's what? Heart moves him. Every man whose heart moves him. You know, Caesar and the IRS and Canada Revenue, they make it law, right? For their givings. They make it a mandate. You have to give. You don't have a choice, regardless of what your heart says. You got to give. That's the econ- and that's because it's the economy of earthly rule. Do you see that? Earthly rulers need to demand things. Not God, not God who's into the free will offering, free will giving. God says, give to me, I love this, as your heart moves you to. Of course, that can only be a heart moved first by God himself, that first cause, the grace of God, the only thing, the grace of God that can regenerate, ignite, and compel the heart. Again, we must be clear about that. There's no other way. 
You need divine gasoline in order to do this. It must come from God, and it only comes from God first. God says to Israel, receive contribution only from those whose heart is in it. The first cause compelling the second cause, the human will, hear the volition of each Israelite. Then, of course, now it is on them. That word, by the way, contribution there, has the sense of tribute. This is a good word because it means it's giving what is due. You think of the tribute brought, right, in ancient times to kings, the proper tribute, giving what is due. That's in that sense of contribution. Such a good word. Yes, but unlike the approach of some of the kings of old, and again, we would even say rulers today, this is godly giving. This is giving that says this. Note the difference. This is not what I must do. This is what I may do. You see that? It's not what I must do. It's what I may do. What I may do. This is a hard expression that is compelled by God's grace and receives God's grace to respond to God's person and work by contributing to him. Later in chapter 35, by the way, we will see how much God's grace can stir his people toward him. There is a vigorous response from these Israelites. And we'll get to that. So we'll reserve further comment on Israel's response until then. For now, in this chapter and the chapters that follow, for the next few, these are the instructions. We don't see the response from Israel yet. These are just the instructions. And I say that to say, you'll notice it'll almost seem like it'll repeat itself when we get later on in Exodus. And that's because it's not only a recount of the instructions, but it is narrating their response. So we'll get to that. However, we cannot leave this verse without one further mention. And that is the continuity with the new economy. Of course, we're in the old economy here, but there's continuity with the new economy. And this is just what, when we think about contributing heartily, this is just what the New Testament says. It's not just an Exodus 25 thing. It's actually a 2 Corinthians 9 thing as well. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what? A cheerful giver. That's a heartfelt giver. That is one that says, it's not what I must do, it's what I may do. And thus, I give a contribution. Cheerful giving, in other words, giving from the heart, giving heartily. God does not want, whether with ancient Israel or today's church, a dutiful giver. God's not into that. Dutiful giving. No, no, no. Beloved, that's the first principle of our approach to God's presence. Wholehearted contribution. That would be indeed contributing heartily as we ready for him. That's one. Two, producing excellently. Producing excellently. Look down at verse three. We continue, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twin linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting and for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst." A couple notes here. First of all, this is broader, and let's just say finance is a currency. We want to be clear about that. That's our default when we think of these things. But what we're going to see is this is broader than just giving money. In fact, we could say it's a much more holistic approach than that. Secondly, look at what the word doesn't say. It doesn't say contribute what you can. Bring forth whatever you like. 
Yahweh doesn't say anything goes. Do you see that? He's not, that's not what he's saying. No, that's a modern sentiment. You hear this often, and I must admit, it can be well-meaning, but often it's thoughtless. It's infected the church, and it's thoughts like this, second best, third best, even leftover things are good for God. From secondhand furniture to half-hearted efforts, it's all brought in. You hear people say the church is not picky, we'll settle for whatever. Well, the only thing wrong with a well-meaning statement like that, look at the text. That's not what God says, is it? That's just not what God says about his things. God says the contribution, the contribution, the, the, the dwelling for him, the contribution to build and assemble the dwelling place for him must consist of the very best of materials. That's what God says. Like, look at it, gold. Gold is still one of the most precious commodities today, isn't it? It's always an interesting thing as the world spirals down, you always hear the price of gold go up, right? You just recognize people hanging on to true, genuine, valuable things because it's valuable. And look at it, like the deep-colored yarns. Maybe you've wondered why blue, purple, and scarlet. Well, in ancient times, think of the rich blues and the scarlets, right? And those deeper purple colors, they needed more dye to make those brilliant colors, not to mention a lot of shellfish, a lot of construction that goes into the deeper colors. Those things were expensive things. And that's why God calls for them here, not necessarily again because of what went into it, but just it's the finest of the earth for God, finest of the earth for God. And then look at this, twinned linen, tan skins, oil, incense, and gemstones. Those are so precious, I hardly need to explain them, right? That the preciousness of those materials just jumps off the page. All excellent resources, fittingly for the production of godly things. Now, a verse and a point like this, probably when you see it presented that way, arouses all kinds of questions in you, right? All kinds of maybe concerns. And it does. It deserves a caution in light of some churches today. So we do need to do this. There are some churches that don't bristle against excellence. They embrace it, but they embrace it horizontally. Do you know what I mean? It's excellence horizontally. By that, I mean excellence is about a presentation, and it's a performance before others. It's a show, it's a show. At times, it involves music, of course, the lights and the fog and the turned-up volume. For others, it involves individual lifestyles, churches that are country clubs. Excellent, sure. Everyone is living so-called excellent lives, doing extravagant things, but have little, let alone time, left for the house of God. Producing excellently is not that. Producing excellently is producing the best market for God, for God. And really, that's it, right? That's what we're talking about here. For Yahweh, it's not a matter if we can produce excellence. You understand what I mean by that? We all can. In our spheres, we can. We can all give 100% effort. Can we not? Always. It's the one grade we can all achieve. 100% effort in production. No, it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of who we produce our very best and excellence for. 
That is why your wild brother, you know who I'm talking about, maybe he's a wild uncle. You know the one with the worn pants and the tattered shirt? He wears it everywhere. Doesn't really keep up his house. Do you know who I'm talking about? And he, he always is not looking very presentable. He's looking a little disheveled. And all of a sudden, your daughter is getting married. And lo and behold, wild brother shows up in a suit. And you say to him, you have a suit? I didn't even know that. And what does he say? I did it for her. I did it for her. If wild uncle can do it for a lower thing, beloved, how much more do we have effort left on the table for God? How much more? It's not a matter of if we have effort. It's where we point that effort. And listen to me before you take it the wrong way. The point is not to get you wearing suits, right? That's not what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Please don't walk away with that. I think you get the point. The point is what stirs the very best of your internal production. What's making you go? What drives you to give your very best? What is it? What is the thing you sit up straight for and say, I need to be prepared for that? What is that? What causes you to make that extra effort to produce your very best? Listen, only you know what that is, you and God. What causes you to produce gold, fine linen, and fragrant incense? What causes that in you? And here you might say, well, who has access to such precious commodities? That's a great question, right? Who has access to that? Turn to Exodus 12. Turn to Exodus 12. Here, listen, Israel did. How soon we forget. You're not looking at internal shelves that are bare, right? Israel did. Remember when they left Egypt, Exodus 12? Let's just read Verse 33 to 36 again. And remember, this is the Exodus. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. Remember, this is the 10th the plague that's come upon them. They realize the power of God. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. That's in haste. And then this, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians, listen to this, for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they what? Plundered the Egyptians. Israel had it. This is not something you got to go out and get and overstretch yourself to get. Yahweh, listen. Yahweh demands and commands and asks his people only that which he first gives, right? That's the way it works with Yahweh. And the same with Israel here. Israel had it. They received much from Egypt. By the way, we still revere what? Egyptian fine linen? Fine doing linen? This is what they had there. They had the finest. And by the way, we could also mention two other things. Remember, they defeated the Amalekites in chapter 17. One would assume they have spoil from Amalek. And of course, the Sinai Peninsula, as some of you know, very rich with acacia wood. That is really the epicenter where you would get fine wood like that. So it was all there. And here's the key, at their arm's reach, within their arm's reach. And the point here then is that excellence in view was what Israel already had. Do you see that? This is not about going out and overstretching. It's what they had. 
And that's the same with effort, isn't it? We all have effort to give to our Lord, and it's been given by him. And listen, to press the point, to make sure we're all clear as we leave, God does not call for excellence that we do not have access to or is beyond us. He doesn't call for excellence that's beyond us. No, God says in context here, produce the very best of what you have. Produce what I have given you. This is then giving thought to what materials we offer up from our own possessions. This is then not doing anything or producing anything thoughtlessly. Let's be done with that. This is then offering all things to Almighty God with every single ounce of our ability. And if we're still bristling at the notion of excellent things here, consider verse 8. Look at it with me. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Sanctuary there, that's one of the words. Look at synonym for tabernacle. is another word interchanged in the Pentateuch for tabernacle. Sanctuary means the word there, sacred space. That's the root of the word. In fact, actually it's taken from the word holy. Holy. So Israel produced goods to make a holy space, a separate set-apart space. Israel, you are producing goods for the purpose of what is holy. And when we think about what is holy, I want you to think about this. Being holy is beyond best. It's actually perfect, right? That's what we're talking about here. And again, we're talking about God and, and preparing for the, the dwelling place of God. Does this make sense? Church, no less for us. Hebrews 12, 28 commands us, listen, to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That gets at our posture of what we're producing before him. That's offering to God, producing for God worship, which, as we'll see, is exactly what Israel is preparing to do here. We would say it this way, offering excellence for excellence. In other words, we produce the very best for the very best. Like Israel Church, we produce excellence excellently because he is worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. Finally, we contribute heartily, produce excellently. Finally, follow accordingly. Following accordingly. This tabernacle introduction closes with this. Look at verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. I want you to look at that first word there. It's rendered well here. Exactly sits at the beginning. The word construction here in the original places that word at the beginning for emphasis. Exactly, precisely. In other words, the point here is not just to follow direction, right? It's not just to, to follow direction, but to follow direction exactly. Israel, I'm going to lay out all the instructions, Yahweh says, for tabernacle constructions. There will be precise materials, precise measurements, precise men. And I want you, my people, to follow exactly what I tell you to the word. That's what Yahweh is saying here. That's straightforward, right? It's pretty straightforward. I mean, far superior to any instruction manual is God's instruction. And as always, God's instruction is clear. And you might say, well, how clear is it? Well, look at verse 10. Let's just peek into next week's text. 
Verse 10, as we will move on to the Ark of the Covenant, says this, They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You see that? That kind of clarity, and that's about as precise as it gets, right, with measurements, that kind of clarity, listen to me, Westmount, that kind of clarity from God is not just in tabernacle measurements, right? God's word is clear. God's word is clear about creation, human sexuality, and the dignity of human life. God's word is crystal clear. And that's just the first 11 chapters of the Bible. In light of that clarity, I would ask you, especially today, how is the church doing with that? God's word is clear to us about idolatry, profane words, honoring parents, marriage, fidelity, stealing, lying, and being jealous of others and what they have. Yet, how are we doing with that in light of the clarity of God's word? God cannot be clearer to us about purity, anger, malice, greed, cowardice, ritualism, gossip, licentiousness. And things like these. Yet how are we doing here? Yes, we have always struggled with following accordingly, right? It's a great struggle. Listen, whatever is said, let it not be said that our disobedience is a clarity issue, right? Our disobedience is not a clarity issue. It's a hard issue. Our issue is not that God has not made his will and instruction clear. Our issue is that we do not will to follow accordingly and exactly. We have excuses, and again, as we've commented on and and must again in light of this text, we have excuses. Like Eve, it's the serpent's fault. Like Adam, what's the woman, God, that you gave me? It's her fault. And like Aaron, as we'll see in chapter 32, not only does he uh, say it's the people's fault, but he blames the fire. Outspit this golden calf. We're full of them, aren't we? We have all kinds of excuses for our disobedience. And one of them is God's word is just not clear. I'm struggling with that. I'm just not sure. It's incredible to me and all the deconstructionism going on today, how much you hear is, well, you know, We really need to think through what God really says. You know, I heard that before, and you have too, back in the garden. Did God really say? God's people, yes, have a long line of finding all sorts of ways to not follow accordingly, and that is why. And here is, by the way, the backdrop to all we'll see in the chapters ahead. This is why following not according to God's way But according to our notions in our way is precisely why God is actually giving instructions to build a tabernacle. Because we're prone to our own way. And let's just frame this whole thing the way God does in his word. Because we have a genetic disposition to forsake God and flee his presence. It's astounding. But we all are there. From the very beginning, access to God's presence and we flee from it. Because of our rebellion. Yes, by our own nature, we have a volitional bent to move away from God. And our God, by his own nature, hear it, draws near to be present with his children. Do you see that? 
We want to flee. And what does God want to do? Draw near. This nature of God, this dwelling place pattern has been a reality since the first tabernacle. And I've referenced it already. The garden. That dwelling place of God had gold and jewels and God's presence. The beauty and the tragedy is described in Genesis 3, verse 8. Let me read it to you. This captures it all. And they heard the sound of the Lord God, listen, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The presence of God. And the man and his wife, in the presence of God, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That's the first tabernacle, the garden. God's presence, and they flee, of course, we know why. Of course, in the final tabernacle, all is made right. God dwells again with his people. This consummation of God's presence is described in Revelation 21. Let me read you Revelation 21, the final chapter of God's word, or the second last chapter of God's word, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is where? With men. He will dwell with them, that is God, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Final tabernacle. Tabernacle from Genesis to Revelation, that's always been the sovereign plan of God. But we, of course, cannot return to that presence on our own. We cannot. Let us be reminded as we close. We cannot pass the flaming cherubim that guard the garden entrance. We can't do that. We cannot make ourselves right and pull up our own bootstraps and dust ourselves off and, and give a little effort here and there and then say, you know what, I think I'm ready to be in the presence of God. No, it doesn't work that way. And we certainly cannot chart a course after the grave to the new Jerusalem. That is why we need the tabernacle of God John 1.14 describes him. The word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. Or, as it literally says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So that means in the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, it's the same word used in Exodus 25 and John 1. And that's because the ancient tabernacle, the one we're going to study over the next few weeks, listen, here it is, pointed to the eternal one. The eternal one. That is the point of this tabernacle in Exodus. Listen, to foreshadow, to prefigure, to point to the dwelling place of God with man. God in flesh, Jesus Christ. God tabernacling amongst us. That's the point of all we're going to see. The only access to God's presence, listen, is Jesus Christ. There is no other access to God's presence other than Jesus. He must be, then, your first preparation for any approach to God. There is no other way. Only Jesus Christ. And the question before us today as we close and in the weeks ahead is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you, indeed, as the one that sent your Son, Jesus Christ, the dwelling place of God amongst us, Lord. What a treasure that we have celebrated just a few weeks ago. The incarnation, the inbreaking, the indwelling of God with man. Lord, we can only rejoice. It's such peace that we have, Lord, in light of that incredible peace 
to know that not only he came and indwelt, Lord, flesh, but that, Lord, also because of his work, his perfect work laid down of his own will for us and given as a, a payment, a ransom, a sacrifice for our sin, those that would repent and believe, Lord, we can have peace. We can have peace. And Lord, because of Jesus Christ, we can take a text like this and understand that, yes, we too must do it heartily, excellently, and accordingly. God, help us, please, to do so. As again, we consider these things and consider your glory. Amen.